All right. Well, good afternoon, Renewal Mainline. First time being at a 4.30 worship service, or 4 o'clock, let alone preaching at one. Uh, this is my fourth time preaching this message today, so I hope my voice is okay, uh, and I hope I don't start trailing off in, in all these random thoughts. No. Um, no, it's really good to be here with all of you guys. Uh, good to be in this beautiful space together, and uh, good... Last time I've been here, since I've been here last, it feels like you've actually grown. I don't know if it's the length of the room or what, but it feels just really long and big. But it's great to be here and to be, um, yeah, be able to share the Word of God with you this first Sunday of Advent. Well, if you're like me, perhaps you're saying to yourself, excuse me, perhaps you're saying to yourself, I can't believe it's already December. That's where my mind is. That Christmas is right around the corner. And though uh, you might have time off from work or time off from school, the holidays are often anything but restful, right? You're making travel plans or you're, you're making plans to host people. You're making Christmas cards. You have to send those Christmas cards, presents to buy and shop for and presents to wrap, friends to catch up with. Your kids might be off from school, but that just means more work for parents because now it's making plans to uh, spend their time, spend time as a family and what you're going to do about all that. And so long story short, it can be a quite busy and frenetic time for us. Furthermore, uh, for a lot of people, rather than being a celebratory and joyous time, Christmas can actually often be, for a lot of people, a very difficult uh, season. Some people struggle with seasonal affect disorder, depression uh, during these months. Perhaps for students, uh, I don't know where Nova and the mainline schools are on the calendar, but uh, if your finals uh, are already over or coming up, but perhaps you are limping home full of anxiety, thinking, oh, I did not do well, I know I didn't do well, and so there's just this looming anxiety as you head home. Uh, Perhaps as you gather With your family, you're reminded of how dysfunctional your family can be. That when your relatives gather, you're reminded of broken relationships. You're reminded of tension and hostility that exists within your own home. Or perhaps as you look at the dining table and you see the empty chair, you're reminded of loved ones that you lost. And you're brought right back to that place of of the hurt and pain of losing them. Perhaps this season is hard simply because you're exhausted. Um, And ironically, a lot of times we don't realize how tired we are. Uh, I I experienced this at the beginning of my sabbatical uh, last spring. You don't realize how tired you are till you actually stop, right? Till you actually stop and you get away from your regular routine and you just, oh my goodness, you begin to realize, I am really exhausted. And at times you begin to realize how empty and hollow you feel inside. And so it's precisely for all these reasons that at Renewal, we value this Advent season very much. As Pastor Luke just shared, uh, the next few Sundays leading up to the Christmas season is a time of, from the Latin word for uh, arrival or coming, it's where we uh, are reminded of the anticipation and longing that the people of God had, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. And as we think back on his arrival in Christmas, It's also supposed to cause us to long for his second coming, his uh, second arrival, or his return. And so we, for all of the reasons I listed above, of the exhaustion we face, of uh, how busy and distracted, frankly, this season can be, and how difficult this season can be, it really is our hope as a church that each and every Sunday especially, uh, each and every Sunday that we gather, that it truly would be a Sabbath for you, right? Not just a break from your work, but a true rest, as we confess, a true rest for your soul as we reflect deeply on the meaning of Christmas and the significance of Jesus' coming. So our Advent series this year is entitled, The Gifts of Christmas. And we're going to look at four particular gifts given to us From the hand of Jesus, who we could say actually Jesus is the ultimate gift, but four specific gifts. And those gifts are as follows. The gift of hope, the gift of peace, the gift of joy, and the gift of love. And so today we're going to begin with the hope that Jesus gives. And I want to do it under these three headings where we'll look at why hope matters, 
We'll look at the ultimate source of hope. And then thirdly, how to get this hope. So again, why hope matters, the ultimate source of hope, and how to get this hope. And I hope that helps all of us, encourages all of us, and especially for those who might be visiting, you don't consider yourself a Christian, I pray in particular, this would be insightful and helpful for you as well. So before we hop into all that, let me invite us to bow our heads in a word of prayer, and let's seek the Lord and His help. God, I just want to pray this simple prayer that you would help us to see Jesus clearly in this passage, through your word. Help us to see Jesus more clearly, because the fact of the matter is, Lord, in this season, so many other things take uh, the forefront of our view. So many other things come to the forefront. The, the, the tasks and the to-do lists and the things we need to take care of, different anxieties, different fears, different things that break our hearts as we spend time with family or as, as we slow down from work and all these other things that can really consume us in a way that's actually detrimental. And it is for this reason, Jesus, we need to see you. We need to see you clearly. And specifically, as by your Holy Spirit, through your word, we see you more clearly, that our lives would be filled with tremendous hope, the hope that you have purchased and secured for us, not only for our good, but even as we leave this place, Lord, we live in a world that is incredibly broken, and there are a lot of people living without hope. And I pray that you would make us vessels, uh, messengers of the hope that is made real and possible because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, why hope matters. Hope is the uh, part is listed in the famous Pauline triad in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Faith, hope, and love. Uh, and we often hear a lot about faith. We often hear a lot about love, but we don't really talk much about hope. And so I hope to, hope to shed some light on what hope is all about. Now, when Paul says faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, He's not saying faith and hope are somehow, are somehow dispensable or somehow optional. Like, yeah, you know, if you have faith or you have hope, that's really good. But all you really need is love. It's not what he's saying. When he says the greatest of these is love, this is what he's getting at. There will come a day when you don't need faith anymore. Because in the life to come, our faith will become sight, right? You will see the very thing that you had faith in, Jesus Christ. Uh, there will also come in that very same day, the day where we no longer need hope because everything that you've hoped for is now fully yours in the life to come. But on this side of eternity, in this life, hope is tremendously important. Uh, the late Viktor Frankl was a well-known author and survivor of the Holocaust, and he writes this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he's basically describing life in a concentration camp and the experiences of those prisoners in the concentration camps. And this is what he writes. The prisoner who had lost his faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoners refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excrement, and nothing bothered him anymore. Now, what helped Viktor Frankl survive in such a terrible and bleak situation, simply put, hope. It was the hope that he might one day get out that kept him going, that kept him moving on. And those who lost hope, well, in these camps, they literally lost their lives. What a poignant example of how valuable hope is in our life. I mean, think about your life. Think about how much of our lives is tied to hope. 
How much of our lives are energized by hoping? So students, you hope to do well enough to graduate so you can get that job that you hope to have. Or when you start working, you have goals for your career. You have hopes. You hope to advance and grow in your career. Or if you're not an ambitious person, you hope that you don't get fired and that's pretty much what drives you at work, just not getting fired, right? Relationally speaking, for single folks, you put yourself out there, you're willing to meet new people, you're willing to go to places and hang out with social groups that you might kind of be new, new to, but you do so in the hopes of meeting that special someone, of one day getting married. And once you get married, you have hopes for your marriage. You hope your marriage is a successful one. You hope your marriage lasts. You hope your marriage is a happy one. And then if you're blessed with kids or you're, the Lord grants you kids, right? You have uh, hopes for your kids and you spend all this time and energy and you plan and you, you set these things up for them and you put them in programs. Why? Because you have hopes for them and hopes for their future. Even something as non-essential and un unimportant as much of a as much as I'm a fan, something as non-essential to life as our sports fandom, right? Why do you spend hours upon hours upon hours reading about your team, watching every game, following everything that's going on? It's in the hope that they will win the championship in whatever sport it might be. If you had no hope that your team would ever win, why would you waste your time doing that? Well, you wouldn't. What's the point of that? What's the point of investing all that energy if there's no chance they'll ever win the championship? It's the hope that keeps you hanging on and keeps you following. So, in other words, hope animates our lives. Our hope pushes us forward. It's hope that gets you up in the mornings. It's hope uh, because of our hopes that you set goals for your life. It's our hopes that helps us to persevere through times of hardship. But when a person loses hope, they can try perhaps to transfer their hope to something else. But if a person loses all hope, it can literally lead to death, as in the concentration camps, or tragically, some people choose to take their own life when you have lost all hope. But even if a person doesn't come to that point of physically, literally dying, when you lose hope, you do die a certain kind of death. Your heart might be beating, you might be walking around, but you are lifeless, walking dead. You're a zombie, just kind of drifting through life with no expectations, no hopes. And that is why hope matters. But it's not just having hope, period, that matter. Hey, just hoping. Any no. It is vital that what you hope for and what you hope in are worthwhile, right? According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, hope as a verb is to desire with expectation of fulfillment, right? I hope this happens in my life. I hope this happens for my kids. It's a desire with expectation of fulfillment. Hope as a noun is someone or something on which your hopes are centered. I'm hoping in this person. I'm hoping in this thing to get the thing that I desire. So the question must be asked, is what you are hoping for, first of all, is it a worthwhile hope? Is it even worth hoping for such a thing? Because there are such things as bad and useless hopes. Right? So, for example, just a little bit of an extreme example, but it works. Imagine a girl who's in a relationship with a boyfriend who happens to be physically abusive. Right? And in many of these situations, the girl might have this fear that even though this person is abusive, there's this attachment. And so she might say something like, I know he hurts me in these things, but I hope he doesn't leave me. That is not a good hope. That's not a healthy hope to hang on to. She needs to get away. She needs to be free of that guy in that situation. However, even if the hope is a good hope, it's a worthy hope, it's a worthwhile hope, you have to ask yourself the question, are you centering your hope 
on someone or something that can actually give you, that can actually deliver what you're hoping for. Because if, if whatever you're hoping in and hoping, centering your hope on, they or it cannot deliver, what's the point of hoping? Which leads to our second point, the ultimate source of hope. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to a people who had many reasons to lose hope. After years and years and years of decline, the nation of Israel fractures into two. Northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom begins to, uh, uh, they're beginning to, to be uh, invaded by the Assyrians, which were in, uh, at the time a powerful nation, nation that was notoriously cruel to the people they conquered. And so in our text, we read about uh, these territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, and they were the first to basically get occupied and fall. And it would only be a matter of time before the entire northern kingdom would fall to the Assyrians. And southern kingdom would hang on a little longer. They'd be free a little longer, but it would be only be a matter of time that Babylon would come, conquer them as well, an equally cruel empire who did horrible, unimaginable things to the people they occupied, literally ripping open pregnant women, smashing babies against the walls of the city, just horrific things. And these were the people coming after them. It was a very dark time, and it was only going to get darker. Things were bad, and it was only going to get exponentially worse. And it is into this seemingly hopeless and dark situation that Isaiah gives these powerful words of hope. And it's amazing when you read this prophecy, if you read it, it's written in the past tense, even though the fulfillment of this prophecy won't happen for nearly 800 years. But Isaiah speaks these words in the past tense to convey what? To convey this is definitely happening, right? It's like it's a, if a friend asks you for a favor and, and one way you can reply is by saying, consider it done. You haven't lifted a finger. You haven't done anything. But when you say consider it done, you're saying it's as if you're speaking in the past tense. You can be sure that I'm going to do this. Even though I haven't lifted a finger yet, you can be so sure that I'm doing this that you might as well just consider it done. And likewise, Isaiah gives this prophecy and the Lord is speaking to his people and basically saying, consider this done. And so we read these words in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now darkness not only conveys how dire their situation was, but darkness also refers to blindness and ignorance. The people are walking in darkness because they're blind and ignorant to where true hope is found. These people, in chapter 8, we read how they were turning to spiritual mediums and these people called necromancers who summoned the dead and tried to tell the future and so on and so forth. They were looking to those kinds of people for help, for guidance. And of course, we know none of it worked. The mediums, the necromancers, they couldn't help them. Their own kings failed them miserably. And so their hopes were dashed because they were hoping in the wrong people. These people were hoping to uh, not live in darkness. They were hoping for joy. But again, instead they found themselves in deep darkness. These people were hoping to live free, but instead they found themselves in slavery. These people were hoping to live in peace, but they experienced the ravages of war. Their hopes were all dashed because their hopes were set on the wrong people. They were walking in darkness, but then comes this amazing word of hope. Light breaks in, and we read in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And we know that this is no ordinary baby. This is no ordinary child. When we read Matthew chapter 4, 12 to 17, we find out exactly who this baby was. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of 
Zebulun and Naphtali, sound familiar? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then it says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Light came into the darkness. Jesus is that light. Hope was given. Jesus is the ultimate source of all of their hopes. And so just want to list three dimension, three dimensions of hope we see in these in this text. And I already kind of listed them. The people were hoping, they don't want to live in darkness and grief, right? They were hoping to live in joy. And Jesus is where true joy is ultimately found. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Instead, verse 3, you multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Now, in two weeks, we're going to hear a message dedicated to the topic of the joy that Jesus gives. But since it's here in our text, let me just touch upon it briefly, this uh, topic of joy. Now, consider the imagery that is given. This phrase here, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. It's the imagery of farming and agriculture. So think about a farmer's experience, right? Uh, he tills the soil. He plants the seeds, right? With blood, sweat, and tears. It's hard work. He works the land. He waters it. He fertilizes. He protects it from pests. And he's waiting month after month after month after month. And one day, it's time for the harvest. And there he goes out, and he begins to reap the harvest. And in his hands, he has the literal fruit of his labor. He has something to, to show for. And what happens? His heart is filled with joy. Yes, the harvest has arrived. Finally, all that work, all that I was working for, I now have in my hands. Now, think of the opposite. If the opposite happened, what the experience of that farmer would be. Months and months and months, tilling the soil, fertilizing, shooing away pests, watering, doing all this work, and at the end, harvest time comes around, and the crop fails. This is months and months of time, money, energy, and investment with nothing to show for it. Can you imagine how much anguish that that person would experience? Maybe because farming is not in our world. Maybe a more modern-day example, right? Imagine, I was sharing this at Renewal West Philly. We have a few PhD students. Imagine you're writing your dissertation. You're working on your laptop, right? There you are, months and months of research and work and meeting with your advisor and no, correct this and maybe you should add this and work and going back and working and working and working and you're up to, which oftentimes they are 100, 100 plus pages, maybe even into the hundreds of pages and one day you're working and the computer just freezes and you try to fix something, it's virus, corrupted file. Imagine that feeling of all these months of work, and now I have nothing to show for it. Back up your data, that's a side application. <laughs> nothing to show for it. Can you imagine the deep anguish, the deep sense of loss? Now here's the thing, the fact of the matter is so many people are living in this world, so many people are living this life centering their joy, looking for joy, wanting joy, and centering that hoping for joy to be experienced through their career achievements, through their marriage, their spouse, through their kids and their kids' achievements. But none of those things are meant to serve. They do provide a measure of joy, but they're never meant to serve as an ultimate source of joy. Imagine the feeling of investing time, energy, sweat, tears, hoping that you will finally get what you worked so hard for, only to find your career goals fail. The crop fails. The marriage fails. Your kids and all of your parenting goals, you feel that they have 
failed. When your hopes don't pan out, when the crop fails, there is this deep experience of anguish, of pain. Sometimes people get what they want. Their hopes are met. But living in this world, nothing's permanent. Just talking to a brother who um, finally got the job he was waiting for for so long. A few months later, he's finding out there's a good chance he'll get laid off. There's a, you know, people out there who get the marriage that they've always dreamed of, the happiest of marriages. But what's to say that you won't be the couple where your spouse is driving home and a drunk driver plows into them and takes their life? What's to say we won't be the parents? And I hope no one in this room would experience that. But what's to say we will not be the parents who invest so much time, energy, money, blood, sweat, and tears in raising our children with all these wonderful hopes and dreams only to find out they have cancer and die before you, only to lose them in a tragic accident? It happens. And so you see, if all of your hope to experience joy is rooted in things in this world. When the crop fails, when you lose those things, your hope and your joy will die with it. But we were created for so much more. We were created to experience our deepest joy in God. And this is what the text actually, it uses the language of, it's not just we rejoice because all these wonderful things happened. It's we, we rejoice in your presence. We rejoice before you, meaning we rejoice ultimately because we know you and we have you. And you see, when you have Christ, or maybe more accurately, when Christ has you, when he's holding you, he will never let you go. You will never lose him. And he being your deepest and most ultimate source of joy, what that means is it's an indestructible joy because you'll always have him. You may lose a lot of other joys in your life, so to speak, but you won't lose that one. Furthermore, your joy, as it says in verse 3, will only increase. You have increased their joy. And here's this Massive promise that Jesus gives us, John chapter 16, that I'm constantly trying to wrap my mind around, especially as I pastor and talk to people and try to walk through them with, their, with the, the deepest hurts of their lives. There is this beautiful and massive promise Jesus gives that says, he will turn our sorrow into joy. He will turn our sorrow into joy, meaning everything that causes you pain, Everything that causes you to shed tears and breaks your heart in this life, Jesus, like only he can, is somehow able to work all of that and turn it for your good. And to work it in such a way that all that pain, all that sorrow, all those tears ultimately serve your future joy for eternity. Meaning precisely because you went through those things, your joy in heaven will be greater because he turns every sorrow into joy. He truly is, as he's referred to in this prophecy, Jesus is the everlasting father. And at first that sounds like, was Isaiah confused about how he understands the Trinity? Is there some good, I thought God the father, God the son. Why is he calling Jesus the everlasting father? That's confusing. Well, it's not that Isaiah is confused or saying something contradictory. It really boils down to this. In ancient Israel, they viewed their kings as a fatherly figure. The kings were meant to be fatherly figures who loved their people, who cared for their people, who protected their people, who worked for the good and flourishing and joy of their people. And Israel's kings failed miserably, but Jesus does not. He is the loving father in that sense with, a, with this love that works for your good and even turns the sorrows of your life to serve your ultimate future joy. Even earthly fathers understand something about this. Being a dad myself, loving fathers, you are willing to deny your kids certain things that you know will make them sad. 
that you know will make them grieve. You're willing to let them go through that to deny them what they think will bring them joy, to deny them that because what you're trying to work towards is to give them a far greater substantial joy. Let me use an example, a very relevant example in this day and age. Kids are glued to their screens. I mean, my kids, if I let them, if I let them, they would be on their screen all day, every day, right? Just, you know, when the hours we do let them play, or I shouldn't say hours, less than hours, but the times we do let them play, they're always going to run right up to me, put in the code, Dad, and they're, they're just like zombies. Now, what would make them joyful? What would make them happy is if I just let them do that. You want to play anytime, anytime, play as much as you want, as long as you want. And you see, for them, that would bring them joy. But as a father... I realize if I let them do what they think brings joy, then they're going to miss out on far greater joys in life, specifically. If you're always glued to a screen, that's all day, every day, you don't know how to interact with human beings in a healthy way. You see, in order to experience the joy of a deep, meaningful friendship, you need people's skills to experience the joy of love, marriage. You need basic human interaction ability, right? And so by denying them, no, 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 you're not allowed to play. You need to talk to people. You need to look at us. In his mind, oh, why, are you, why are you stifling my joy? No, son, this, this seems mean. But you see, I am preparing you to experience far greater joys. If I just let you do all that time, you will miss out on the joy of nature, of being on a mountaintop and looking out and seeing fall foliage. It just blows your mind. Being on the ocean, you know, deep sea fishing and pulling up these creatures from the deep and the, the wind on your face. There's a beauty in that. There's a joy that that brings that they would miss out on if I just let them have their way. So again, even earthly imperfect fathers are willing to deny their kids immediate joy so as to give them a greater future joy and how much more that is true with Jesus. For those who long to experience real joy, it's found ultimately and truly in an indestructible way in Jesus. Second, to those hoping for freedom, Jesus is where true freedom is found. Now, before they got conquered, oh, we hope we stay free. After they get conquered, we hope we get free one day. They're longing for freedom. And the fact is, one day, Assyria does leave them alone. Babylon does leave them alone, but there's no, it's not that they live free. Guess who comes in next? It's the Romans. The Romans eventually subjugate them, conquer them, and once again, they're living as slaves in oppression. And so when Isaiah gives this word of prophecy, it's clear. This word of prophecy is speaking about more than just earthly political slavery, earthly political oppression. This word of prophecy is pointing at a far more significant and deeper problem than just as, as serious as slavery and political oppression is, there's something far deeper. And that is humanity's slavery to sin. In fact, why do some human beings enslave and dehumanize other human beings? It's because of slavery to sin. There's something twisted in our hearts. And the reason this slavery started is, well, think about how Israel became slaves. They became slaves, why? Because they wanted to be free of God. We don't want to listen to you. We're not going to consult you. We're not going to seek you. We're going to be free from you. And God made it clear, if you do this, I will discipline you. And that's exactly what happened. So in seeking freedom from God, they became slaves. And likewise, this is the story of humanity. In seeking freedom from God, I don't need God to live a meaningful life. I don't need God to have a, a system of morality. I can determine good and evil and right and right. Who needs religion? Who needs God? But the reality is, if you try to live your life free of God, ultimately, in some way, shape, or form, it will lead to slavery. And this is exactly what happened 
to all of us. We have been living as slaves to sin, and what we celebrate this Advent season is the fact that Jesus came to save us from it, to free us from it. What's the language? To break the yoke of oppression, the, or to break the yoke, the, the rod of oppression. He comes to save us. And there's this reference, verse 4, as on the day of Midian. It's a reference to Judges chapter 7, where God says to Gideon, all right, I'm going to help you defeat the Midianites. Here's what I want you to do. First of all, your army is too big. Get rid of almost all of them. And then uh, who you're going to keep are the most incompetent, foolish ones. That's who I want you to fight with. And Midian way outnumbers you, but that's what I want you to do to prove the fact that it's not going to be by your strength and might. I'm the one who will save you, and I'm going to do it through weakness to shame the power of the world. And all that was a foreshadow of the far greater battle and the far greater victory, our, our slavery, to sin, the enemy of sin and death that oppresses us all, not only physical death, but spiritual death. And God says, I'm going to save you. And the way I'm going to do it is through weakness. And isn't that what we celebrate this Christmas? That God doesn't bust into the world, <laughs> guns blazing. He comes as a vulnerable, weak baby. He comes in weakness, he lives in weakness, he dies in weakness to shame the strength of the world, to prove that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. Now, for some of you this afternoon, perhaps, as you sit here, you're feeling oppression. And I don't necessarily mean politically, I mean perhaps you're feeling the reality and the power of sin. You have issues in your life, addictions in your life, things that you just cannot seem to stop. And perhaps some of you, because of that, have grown quite hopeless. And because of that, you just resign to it. You don't even try resisting anymore. You don't even try turning away anymore because what's the point? I'm going to fail again. You've lost hope, perhaps. Or perhaps it's not a particular, like, overt sin issue. One thing happening right now where we're trying to help a lot of people down at Renewal West Philly, and we're thankful for PRN, but there are a lot of folks at church struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression, struggling with mental illness. And we wouldn't say, oh, you're, you're, that's a sin issue. No, I mean, these, sometimes... By living in a broken and fallen world, it means our bodies are broken too. Our minds at times don't work as they should. And for a person in that situation, they can feel utterly hopeless to the point where they want to end their life. But what we need to be reminded of is that because of Jesus, who in this prophecy we are reminded who he is, yes, he came in weakness, but he is mighty God. And he breaks the power of sin. He brings healing, perhaps in this lifetime, for those long-standing mental issues. But even if it doesn't happen in this lifetime, you can be assured one day you will totally be set free. Perhaps for some of you, it's not your own personal struggles in which you've grown helpless. hopeless. It's because of the people around you. As I said, we... In this season, we meet with family, and you sit at the dinner table, and you're like, my family life is messed up. Without going into details, I will say in little ways, I've tasted that myself, where it seems like every holiday, something happens, some kind of argument ensues, and it's just like so frustrating to the point where, frankly, I know I've struggled with hopelessness. I see them like once a year. Nothing seems to change. They're not getting help on their own. What can I do? I'm separated by geography. I can't help. And you just grow utterly hopeless. But this is where we need to be reminded of the truth of this passage, that we serve a mighty God. And he breaks the rod of oppression, not just in your life, but in the lives of those you love and therefore don't lose hope. I just conducted a funeral not too long ago of a, sis, uh, a friend 
who I've known for years, and her father passed away. And I remember through the years, she would always share, he's not a Christian, he's not a Christian. He dumps on the church. He hates Christians. He thinks they're a bunch of hypocrites. Never wants to go to church. He tried it years ago, and it only gave him more reason to never come back. But then this sister, as uh, she called me and said he passed away, I, the first thing in my heart was, oh, Lord, what do I say at a funeral of a person who did not trust in Christ? But I was so encouraged to hear. In God's providence, I was able to come home, take time away. My employers gave me that time, and I just spent a lot of time at his bedside, and something happened that I never thought would happen. That he was too sick to literally get on his knees, but he bowed to Jesus and gave his life to Christ. This man who I, I'm ashamed to say never thought gave his life to Christ. He is a mighty God, and he has the power to break every yoke, every chain. Do not lose hope. To those hoping for peace, Jesus is where ultimate peace is found. And again, I am not going to go in length on this because Pastor Travis next week is covering peace. But let me just quickly say this, because it's touched upon here in the text. The biblical picture of peace is not just the absence of war. The biblical picture of peace is flourishing in every dimension. We call it shalom. So yeah, personal individual flourishing, spiritual flourishing, physical flourishing, but also flourishing in relationships, flourishing in society, flourishing in the world, the physical world. And so shalom is when everything works as it's supposed to work, as God designed it to originally work. That's shalom. When everything is working right, everything is flourishing. This is what is described in verse 7. Of the increase of his government the, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with and right, uh, justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The world around us, even those who don't believe in Jesus, they kind of celebrate this season. And they kind of celebrate it as, yes, it's good once a year to put up some decorations and to be reminded of these topics and themes like we're talking about right now. The topic of joy, the topic of love, the topic of peace. And so you'll see in Starbucks, the cup, love, peace. You'll see in Target, these banners, right? Just everywhere you go, even in an unbelieving world, all these Hey, let's think positive thoughts about hope and peace. But here's the question I would ask is, when we look out into the world, do we have any reason whatsoever to believe that we will actually achieve peace on this earth as humanity? Do we have any reason to believe that human beings have it in them to create this society that we all long for? I would argue... History proves otherwise. Think about how much, after the Holocaust happened, how much time, energy, education, it was all spent to say, this can never happen again. We need to preach, we need to teach the following generations exactly what happened, the horror would have happened, so that this never happens again. This terrible thing never happens again. And you generations of kids trained and raised and taught and Holocaust museums set up. And what do we see happening? Even now, a new rise of Nazism and Nazi ideology where people walk into synagogues and kill people for being Jewish, thinking they're doing the world a favor. Are we really any different today? There's a famous uh, novel called Cat's Cradle by a, uh, an author named Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And in the novel, the, one of the main characters comes across this book. And the title of this book is, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? Long title. What can a thoughtful man hope for mankind on earth Given the experience of the past million years, the character finds this. He's really excited to read it, but it doesn't take him long because the book is one word long. The title, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth? Given the experience of the past million years, and the book says nothing. The humanity, left to itself, has no hope. 
it really is bankrupt. Hope for our world can never be found in this world. It's got to come from the outside, and that's just what Jesus did. He came outside from the outside and entered our world, subjected himself to hatred, subjected himself to bigotry, subjected himself to violence in order to establish lasting, eternal peace, flourishing forever. The hope for joy, the hope of freedom, or we can say change and salvation, the hope of peace, these things are all ultimately, finally, and only found and experienced through Jesus. We sing this beautiful and simple hymn, right? O little town of Bethlehem. And it has this really wonderful verse that fits everything we're talking about. The verse says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the hopes and longings of what we've wanted for years in the world and all the fears of the world, all of it is dealt with and fulfilled in you, Bethlehem, not because you as a town are fulfilling it, the one who has been born to you, Jesus Christ. I started my sabbatical uh, at the beginning of April, and my wife, that first week, comes up to me. I'm lying on the couch, just relaxing. She goes, I got you a sabbatical present. Sabbatical present? Oh, thanks. I didn't know people did things like that. So she hands me this little bag. You know those little gift bags that if you don't feel like wrapping something, nice and convenient, right? It's just a sparkly bag and throw some tissue paper in there and there you go. So she comes with that little bag, puts it on my chest. Happy sabbatical. And I said, oh, what's this? I'm just kind of opening the tissue paper. And then there's a Ziploc bag. I'm like, okay, really, honey, you don't have to go out of your way to decorate this Ziploc bag. What? And I pull the Ziploc bag out, and it's a pregnancy test. And it says, positive. And the Lord has not created me with large eyes, but those were the largest eyes <laughs> I've ever had. I was like, whoa! Is this real? He says, yes. Happy sabbatical. <laughs> and later I find out it's our first daughter, number four. Thank you. Praise God. Our at the first service, I was like, it was the best Christmas present I've ever gotten. And I forgot my third son. His birthday is December 27th. So I'm like, <laughs> glad he wasn't in the service. But I think about that incident, and it was a remarkable gift in, very, in a very unremarkable package. Remarkable gift in a very unremarkable package. And is that not true of Christ? Unremarkable town, Bethlehem. Unremarkable couple. Seemingly unremarkable little baby in the middle of Judea. But he was literally the hope of the world. Unremarkable get a package, but a remarkable gift. And I hope even that, the manner in which Christ came, even that fills you with hope. As we are reminded that a lot of times the way that God works in our lives and in the world is through seemingly unremarkable ways. To us, it's like, is God even doing anything? But it's often in those times God does his most remarkable work. Finally, how to get this hope and we're done. This wonderful promise ends with these words. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In short, he's the one that makes all of this possible. Verse 5, the boots and the war garments are burned. And so that's conveying, yes, total peace is now here. But it's also conveying, you don't need to wear war boots and war clothing because you don't need to fight. Someone fought for you. This imagery, as we read in verse 3, of the people enjoying the spoils of war, it doesn't say they fought. They enjoy those spoils of war because someone else won the victory. Jesus Christ is that ultimate victor who has purchased you, given you access to true joy, the hope of actually experiencing true joy, the hope of true freedom, the hope of, of true peace. And he gives it to us all freely. 
because he paid for it. And that's why truly hope is a gift. But as we close, I think this is where it helps to, to just make one final distinction between faith and hope. Because for some of us, maybe you're like, what? well, what? They kind of sound the same, but they're not. Or else Paul wouldn't list them faith and hope. There's a distinction, but they're related. And so the easiest way to illustrate it and explain it is like this. Imagine I go, come to my kids and I say, for Christmas, we're going to Disney World. Woo! Right? So we're going to Disney World. That promise for my kids to believe it, that's faith. I believe what dad just said. And I believe what dad just said. I believe those words because I believe my dad is trustworthy. That's faith. What is hope? Hope is this. We're going to Disney World, right? It's hope is that excitement, that anticipation, that longing. That's what hope is. Longing, excitement, anticipation that gets kindled inside and moves to action. Run upstairs. I'm going to bring my, this stuffed animal. I'm going to pack this. I'm going to wear this, right? Hebrews 11.1 1 gets at this. Faith is being sure of what you hope for. You have faith that it's going to happen, that what you desire, what you hope for, it's coming because you believe in the one who promised it. So how do you experience true, indestructible hope? It's all tied to putting your faith in Jesus. Without the faith part, faith is the basis for all of our hope. Believing Christ is who he says he is. That he, what he said he came to do is true. The very son of God who lived a life we failed to live, died the death we deserve to die to make us right with God and restore the entire creation. All it takes to experience and live in this amazing hope is to simply Believe his word. Believe he is who he says he is. And when you trust him, when you believe that, your life gets filled with this empower, incredible hope. And what do we say in the very beginning? Hope animates. Hope is what causes you to set goals. Hope is what helps you to persevere when the, when the going gets rough. And so when you put your faith truly in Jesus, even when the going gets rough, you continue to persevere because you have hope. You know that, hey, my hopes aren't tied to things in this life. My hope's tied to Jesus. That's an indestructible hope. And everything that hurts me, he's turning to good anyway. No matter how dark it gets, I still have reason to be joyful. No matter how uh, persistent this issue is, no matter how hard-hearted that person looks, I have hope because I believe Jesus and who he says he is. Mighty God, Savior of the world, breaks every yoke breaks every chain. And no matter how bleak this world looks, I have hope because Jesus promises I'm making all things new. And what that makes us do as Christians is not passively, oh, what up? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Glad I'm not going down with it. No, it does the opposite. Say, precisely because true justice is coming, precisely because true peace and unity amongst people are coming, Christians can walk into the most hopeless of situations and say, no, we're going to work against this. We're going to fight against this because you know what? God is. And God wants to show, even now, even today, the kind of world he's ushering in. Christians should be the kind of people that they can go into the most hopeless of situations and work hard, inspired by a true, living, certain, unbreakable hope found in Jesus alone. Let's pray.